Hello folks and welcome back and if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into this week's show, I want to talk to you about what it means to be a high performance human. It has nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike or run. It's got everything to do with your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, your work habits and so much more. If these are areas you'd like to improve on, we would love to help you. I currently have availability to take on a few clients and my wife Beth, who is a certified life coach, has good availability as well. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we have you covered and you can find contact details in the show notes. And now for today's show. Recently, I was really pleased to be able to show that we'd agreed a partnership to work with the folks from Precision Fuel and Hydration. And as a podcast listener, this is good for you because it means you can get 15% off your first order with them. And if you haven't already taken advantage of this, then please look for the link in the show notes. I've known the founder, Andy Blow, for many years, in fact, from before he even started the company. And I really like the products and also the way they go about the business. One thing that makes them different is their goal to educate athletes about fueling and hydration. In today's podcast, Emily and the company's sports scientist, Emily Arrow, chat with me about case studies they've been writing regarding the athletes who use their products, top age groupers and elite professionals. They've got over 200 now, all compiled by Emily. And from these, there are some very significant lessons which have relevance for you, listener. We talk about the benefits of having a flexible strategy that changes with each event due to factors like duration, weather and terrain. We talk about pre-race hydration, the benefits of training your gut to absorb more carbs and the different approaches, if there are any, between male and female athletes. Of course, this information might be more pertinent to you during the racing season. And so whilst we come into the end of the season now, we also talk about what you can do to make your training nutrition better during the winter. That doesn't mean this is something you can ignore because the sooner you get on top of this, the better prepared you'll be for 2024. So buckle up, take some notes and let's get chatting. Well, good morning and welcome back to Mr. Andy Blow of Precision Hydration and also welcome for the first time, Emily Arrell. Uh, Emily um, is sports scientist. She's been heavily involved with some of the topics we're going to discuss today. So uh, thank you very much for both of you for being here. All good. All good. Um, yeah, I've got to say, Simon, Emily's one of those people, you know, when they say if you run a company, you should employ people that are smarter than you and better than you. Yeah. Something. Well, Emily's come in and proven that handily because she did the same sport and exercise science degree that I did in Bath many years ago. I, of course, like barely scraped a 2 1, and Emily strolled through with the first recently. So, she's <laughs> so a uh, yeah, great, great addition to the squad here. Yeah. That's but that's that's what smart leaders do, isn't it? Find even smarter people. That's how they build, that's how they build um, empires. So, well done to both of you. Um, well, now we're it's not we're not going to put Emily on the spot today, but we may get a chance to find out exactly how smart she is. Um, so it's been a while since we caught up. Um, you've when we have been partnering and um, getting some of our clients interested and involved in some of your precision fuel and hydration products. And I know that quite a few people I've been working with have. have been in contact with some of your team for those 15 minute video calls and found them very useful so there will be links to that in the show notes and thank you thank you for for doing that because um i think it really did help 
each of those folks with their um, nutrition strategies and hydration strategies for race day. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, for anybody who listened to previous podcasts that Andy and I have done, um, you may have heard us talk about some of the case studies they have. Um, Emily's been massively involved in this. It was her project when she was an intern with Andy's team, and they're well over 200 case studies now. Um, and we're going to talk about those today and how some of the things that they've um, learned um, can help you, the listener, when you're training and um, racing. So let's crack on with those then. So um, let's just have some headlines first. So, Emily, I'm going to ask you because you've been compiling all this data. What? Just give me some, some of the key lessons that you've um, learned from these case studies that you've been compiling. Yeah, there's there's so many key takeaways from the case studies. We do have kind of a database of over 300 now and over 200 of those are specifically triathlon case studies. Um, I think there's two main kind of points that we can take away from that. From each case study, we kind of get the numbers of what athletes are hitting in terms of their grams of carbohydrate per hour, milliliters of fluid per hour and milligrams of sodium per liter. And then with 200 case studies of that, we can kind of collate all that data and look at trends in terms of what people are hitting on the bike and the run on average across all these different races. And then the other kind of main takeaway we get from the case studies is how athletes are actually hitting those numbers. So if I say that athletes are hitting kind of over 90 grams per hour on the bike, how are they actually doing that? So what's their kind of bottle breakdown? How are they taking it? Is that dual, is that gels or drink mix, that kind of things in terms of the trends then I think from the whole, the whole database, it shows that the fueling side of things is actually really really high and what you'd kind of expect the the kind of average across our triathlon case studies is 80 grams per hour but that includes the swim time as well so that's very high and that's just the average so lots of athletes are actually hitting over that over 90 grams per hour on the bike um and it's yeah really interesting to see obviously the the science recommendations would say the higher carbs the better but actually to see athletes are doing that and these are kind of top level athletes and having kind of successful races where they've raced well as well to see that they are at the top end of those recommendations and then for the hydration side of things I think it's a lot more individual and the data shows that there's a real big range in the amount of fluid people are taking on per hour and the amount of sodium they're taking on per liter to match their individual losses but the data shows that with kind of a, a wide range of what they're taking on per hour and that also varies depending on on the conditions as well with kind of the fluid exactly as you'd expect in the hotter conditions being higher per hour and in the cooler conditions being lower per hour but the the data just gives us evidence to support that so when we're giving recommendations to athletes and those on like the video calls that I have I can say kind of and use the the data that we have to back up the recommendations that we're talking about mm. I remember when we first started working together Andy when you were doing just those little hydration testing kits and um, you'd put this little thing this little device on that's like a wristwatch and it would collect some sweat off your skin and then you could predict um the type of um salt and uh, sweat loss that folks would have um and it seemed to those results seemed to correlate a lot with uh, some of the people i knew who uh, didn't didn't get cramp ended up sort of finishing a, a long distance race with black kit covered in salt stains um has the data that you've been collecting sort of confirmed a lot of what you suspected right at the beginning or has it changed the way you you think about that on the hydration side on the on the hydration side 
one of the most interesting facts that we've seen in the in the large data pool is that when we sweat test athletes or any group of people we see this big range in their sweat sodium concentration some athletes as you've articulated lose a very small amount of sodium in their sweat maybe two or three hundred milligrams a liter others might lose a really high amount which could be up to two thousand milligrams a liter but the average is about 950 milligrams per liter so it's it's that's the middle of the bell curve when it comes to human sweat sodium concentration when we look at all of the data and the average and the average sodium concentration per liter that people are taking in during ironman and half ironman races we see an average which comes up somewhere in the middle of that 900 milligrams per liter range which is really really interesting because as that that data set is now reasonably large at over 300 people and to see that that the average amount of sodium that people are replacing is actually close to the average amount that that humans lose in sweat is quite an interesting finding. Mm. Uh, We also, as Emily already pointed out, we do see quite a large range. We see very occasionally, we see some athletes who take zero sodium in a race and just take fluids. And, And then at the other end, we sometimes see athletes that take very, very highly concentrated drinks because they, their sweat is a lot more concentrated when it comes to sodium or their sweat loss mm. a lot, lot higher. And so although there would definitely be individual instances where people don't get it quite right, as a as a trend, the data that we get from sweat testing seems to support the data that we see in people's actual um, real life experience of what they do in races. Yeah, and um, what going back to what Emily um mentioned a minute ago about the key lessons particularly with hydration um highlights what we've talked about in previous podcasts that um number one it doesn't matter what you know you can't go on a facebook forum and hey hey what are you guys taking for hydration on your race day because it's very individual and two you need to have a (laughs) i was going to say a fluid strategy but that's too much of a pun but you need to have a strategy that's adjustable dependent on the conditions and the severity of the race. So um, we talked about you guys have just, you, you guys just been in Nice for the men's um, race in the Ironman World Championship. And I know you're going out for the ladies race in Kona in a few weeks. Two different sets of conditions, both hot, but I guess a bit more humid in Kona. Um, windy, different types of courses. So you couldn't just say, well, I've got an Ironman here and it's going to be, I'm going to, as a pro or an elite athlete, I'm going to be out there for nine hours and it's going to be 30 degrees it's totally different. So you've got to have a different strategy, haven't you? And I, and I think that's something that I've really picked up every time we've talked is the importance of individualizing hydration and being prepared to change it. Yeah. Yeah. And a very, a very like interesting and concrete example of that is um, the, the data we've got from Leon Chevalier, who was, who was seventh in Kona last year and then who was fifth in Nice this year. So, two really world-class performances in in the same race in different conditions leon drank i think i'm right in saying nearly twice as much in terms of fluid volume he was over 1.2 liters an hour i believe in kona last year this year in nice he was just under 800 milliliters an hour and that that we can definitely put down to the fact that although it was hot, I, w- I stood out on the run course in Nice. It was definitely hot, but early in the day on the bike, it really wasn't as hot. There wasn't the the, the level of humidity on the bike course for that race. They they ride up. Um, uh, it's actually not the Col de Vence. It's another I'm trying to think of the name of the climb, but they climb up to over a thousand meters and 
and are, are up higher so it's a bit cooler so i think the overall heat stress of that race is a little bit lower that and that was reflected in some lower numbers the other thing to your point about the um the comment around the strategy being you know fluid or changeable on the run course in kona the uh, the aid stations are possibly a little bit more frequent but also they're a lot less busy because once you when if you're a professional man in in the race in kona you hit the queen k and there is no one else you're running alone or at least mm. maybe one or two other people in nice what we saw in the later laps on the run course because a four lap run we saw increasingly that the run course became not congested but it just became busy and leon commented after the race that he opted to not take fluids from some aid stations purely on the basis that he didn't want to break his rhythm and when when there were a lot of people around him mm-hmm. yeah he probably went about as light on fluids as we would have liked to see someone see in those conditions and he obviously made it stick i mean the guy ran a 239 marathon which is which a few years ago would have been practically a an ironman world record you know mm. so so he performed brilliantly but i think definitely had to because of the circumstances the race had to adjust his plan and skimp a little bit more on fluid the other the other comment that he made i think on the bike was that he drank a little bit less because he was taking bottles of water and choosing to dump some of it over his body for cooling rather than hydration Um, and we can say with hindsight that based on his performance he put out an extremely you know well a, a fantastic performance and didn't fade towards the end so he, he obviously treaded the tightrope there and got it right but that's that i think is is what you get when when you've got a you know someone who's very in tune with their body someone who's done a lot of testing and training and knows intuitively what they need to take in on the day if if we if you then flip the script with leon and start talking about the carbohydrates what we don't see in different races is a significant difference in what he aims to take in if anything his carbohydrate intake over the the last few Ironman races he's been doing has just been steadily inching upwards as he's found the ability to tolerate a little bit more and a little bit more. So whether he races in cool conditions or hot conditions, he's aiming for a really high carb intake because his power output and his speed of movement is still really high. So he needs adequate fuel to be able to do that. What you say there is quite interesting actually about um, about Nice and the cooler temperatures in the morning and then the, the cooler temperatures when you get a bit higher up um, and f- away from the sea. Um, I had a conversation with Jason Coop, who, by the way, uh, um, he's an ultra-distant running coach. I was wearing my Precision Fuel and Hydration T-shirt and he, he gave you guys some kudos. He said he loves your product, so uh, that's a nice little plug. But we talked about hydration requirements for – or hydration and nutrition requirements for ultra-distance racing, and he said – yeah, actually, hydration is probably a, a priority, more of a priority to get right than the nutrition. And he said in some of the big races, um, it changes as well because you can start off in those cooler conditions, as you sort of indicated, and then it gets quite hot in the day. If you're doing something like Western States, you know, and the, ch- the temperature can change as you're gaining height and then drop it down again and going through the day and into the night. Uh, and athletes, the best athletes take account of that. And most people don't, and that's where they come unstuck. So, again, it, I think it all just goes back to to point towards all those things we've discussed in previous podcasts that you can't just think that because you've got a great strategy in one event, it's going to carry you through all the other events. You know, you have to take each event differently, and you have to work at it. And and the way you use your nutrition and hydration in training, going back to what you just said about Leon there, 
um, and how he's slowly been increasing the amount of carbs that he can tolerate is is very much a part of your training and very much a training session in itself. Yeah, yeah, we've we've actually worked with Leon directly for two and a half years now. So he started um, when he did Ironman Bolton a couple of years ago, and he was taking on I think on average about seventy nine grams per hour. And now at Nice the other weekend, he was hitting on average one hundred and sixteen grams per hour. Mm. It's it's a big step up, but that's two and a half years of work in training to kind of train his gut, get used to be able to tolerate this higher amount of carb per hour. Um, so that when it comes to Nice and he's racing kind of a, a really high race intensity, he knows he can tolerate that higher amount without any gut discomfort at all. Mm, yeah. Uh, again, for for the average age grouper, it's something that they don't consider. You know, I always have a bit of a chuckle when I, I see people saying, oh, you don't need that stuff. I exist on pork pies and cheese and ham sandwiches. And yeah, we've probably been there, Andy, haven't we? And uh, Emily, maybe you have as well, where a, a little something like that can actually taste really nice at certain points. But um, I think the harder you're going, the less your body's going to tolerate that sort of stuff. And it'll, it never tastes quite as nice on the way out. <laughs> No, definitely not. And I think that's a valid point is that age groupers who aren't com- who aren't competing at the sharp end, who are taking a long, long time to finish an Ironman or something like that, they're naturally, because their fitness level isn't as high, not only is their actual intensity lower, but their relative intensity compared with their maximum is a lot lower. So mm-hmm. it does give a little bit more latitude then with what you can what you can take in from a fuel and hydration point of view. You probably can experiment with a little bit more in in terms of real food and those sort of things but i would still be an advocate for you know sports nutrition being the backbone of what you take in because it's it's very quantifiable it's very digestible it's very easy and you can keep track of your numbers easily although you can make an estimate as to how much carbohydrate you're going to get from say a, a banana or a uh, you know a homemade energy bar or something like that it's not going to be as accurate as what you get out of a known energy chew or a bottle of energy drink or something like that so you're always a little bit left guessing as to how much you've taken in over a period of time the there seems to be a kind of i don't, I don't know I, I, there, there seems to be a a myth with some people that there's there's a magic formula in in taking something or not taking something that will make all the difference and in actual fact it's it really ought to be quite a bit more simple i think you've just got to find products or foodstuffs that that consistently work for you and then manipulate the amounts of them to hit target numbers and not get too caught up in you know looking for variety looking for taste this isn't a culinary experience you know this is just put, putting fuel in the engine like leon for example we use him as an example a lot but he's very disciplined about just getting all of his calories almost exclusively from gels that's what he does for the eight hours he's out there end of story um yeah you could argue if you're out there for 14 hours it is a little bit different you might want a little bit more variety but but what blows that out the water a little bit is when we work with some of the runners doing western states even the fastest runners are doing 15 16 17 hours 90 percent of what they're taking in these days is energy gels or drink mix so it's it's doable if you want to if you're focused on performance and i think accepting that as a a viable way of doing things is is useful the, the case studies you've been compiling emily uh are mostly high-end age groupers and elites um so would you say that there's a definable line above which your principles and lessons apply and for folks like like we've just talked about that perhaps 
don't feel that they're at the performance end. They're going to be out there a, a little longer or a lot longer. Um, you know, are they the sort of people who are going to be turning off when they're listening to it? Or can those folks still benefit from this um, this information as well? I think they can definitely still benefit. I think the principles stay the same about what Andy was saying, the simplicity and what we talk about as the three levers, those carb, sodium and fluid numbers, which are in every case study. Um, are the same across a, a lower someone who's going to take a lot longer the only thing that does change is is the numbers that they might be aiming for might be a little bit lower in terms of the fueling the carbohydrate side of things as Andy said changes depending on the relative intensity and the duration so if you're going for longer at a lower relative intensity that carb number that you might be aiming for might be more like 60 or 75 grams per hour compared to Leon who's aiming for over 100 grams per hour on the bike hydration like we kind of discussed there is a lot more individual so the principles are exactly the same for someone like Leon and an age grouper it's just individual in terms of their sweat losses in terms of the numbers they should be aiming for but the level doesn't make a difference really it's all about the volume they're sweating and the amount of sodium they lose to know what they should replace and then also the event conditions impacts their sweat rate so that needs to be kind of taken into account as well Mm. I think for me as a coach I am always sad um, when I hear folks telling me how their race was just overshadowed by nausea and sickness and I, I mean you know I've done I'm a Nine to 18 and 19 full distance events now. And I'd say that on three quarters of them, I've been sick. On two of them, I've actually had a great race and enjoyed the race because I didn't have that nausea. And on the ones where I wasn't sick and wasn't having a great race, I just I just felt sick. And so that was on my mind all the time. And I had a bloated stomach. I just, I just didn't feel comfortable. And I'm sure that affected my performance because you're thinking about the wrong things. Um, so even if somebody's listening saying, well, that's not me, you know, I'm not bothered about going sub nine hours, just want to have a good time. You can still improve your overall experience of the day and maybe your performance if you pay a bit more attention beforehand to what you're going to be putting in your mouth. Yeah, definitely. I, I talk to loads of our, our customers on video calls and most of the time it's about issues that they've had in races. It mm. could be something or a lot of the time it is sickness, GI distress and everything like that. And what I really take away is I go through their strategy with them like a case study and I do the analysis of, okay, what numbers were you actually hitting then in terms of the the carbohydrates and the hydration side of things to be able to spot errors in that plan and where it might have gone wrong and led to those issues. So it's a real takeaway that they can they can do then that themselves to work out, okay, I'm taking on 90 grams per hour. Maybe that's too much. Maybe I need to back that down. But they can they can use this as a way of yeah, analyzing their intake and then kind of tweaking the plan from there to stop these issues occurring. I guess, uh, you know, going back to Leon again, because you've got so much data accumulated from him in, in different types of races. Um, when I plan an athlete's program, I use training peaks and I have a structured program in there and we talk about nutrition. Um, p- perhaps we don't talk about it enough, or maybe that's something I need to be um, outsourcing to you folks. Um, but it, it seems from what you're saying that if if an athlete wants to, improve their performance from year to year. They also need to have a structured approach to how they're going to improve their ability to tolerate carbohydrates throughout the year. So, you know, in the way that we might be increasing the long run or the long ride or the intensity of certain sessions, there, there should be some stru- some structured strategy there um, for nutrition as well as to how we're going to nudge that up every month. 
yeah definitely yeah. I think part of that is is tracking it like we've done specifically for Leon um in training I, that's what I tell customers to do go away in in your training session see what you can tolerate keep track of that and keep track of what what your gut felt like taking that amount on and then as you're working through your, your training plan you can kind of look week on week at increasing that slowly um and keep track of how your gut feels and be able to build that up by keeping track of it yeah i think there's a huge benefit simon from from people not doing it all the time but picking certainly as as they get out of this kind of winter base type training phase and into the the build-up that happens at the start of the year into the spring like picking your biggest longest training sessions presuming you're training for a long distance um event like an ironman pick the pick the one or two sessions in the week that are the longest the most closest in relation to intensity you're going to to go out in the race and then fueling and hydrating them in a way that that is similar to how you will in the race so using using the products that you intend to use so you that you really flush out whether they work for you or not and that you get really used to using them and feeling out the difference of for example how do i feel if i if i move from like 40 grams of carbs an hour to 60 do i need to take that in like three little doses of 20 grams throughout the hour or am i someone who can just tolerate slamming down two gels in quick succession halfway through the hour and forgetting about it i think that's a great idea my only concern is that in a in a long distance triathlon where folks mostly feel sick is not when they're on the bike it's when they're halfway through the run so about 20k in probably because you're running up you know you're running your stomach contents are getting sloshed up and down now everything's mixing up um but it's not often possible to recreate a six-hour ride and then a two-hour run on top of a swim perhaps in in the seaway swallowing a bit of salt water as well um so have we just got to make the best of what we've got available? Because I don't think any of us would advocate somebody actually going out and doing an iron distance um, training session because then that just compromises all the other sessions for a week or two. I, I guess we could earmark races where we do this. So we've got race stress as well. Um, but most people aren't willing to forfeit a race just to practice their nutrition strategy. No, but I think, and I think the point you make is valid, but yeah, you do just have to make the best of the, the situation and you have to, you have to treat every single one of those long training sessions as, as an opportunity to to fuel and hydrate effectively. The side benefit of that, of course, in training is that if you go out and do your 90 minute, two hour long run on the weekend and you take two or three gels and have some liquid with you, you're, you're likely to perform better at the back end of that session because you're less fatigued and you like to faster as mm. well as starting that process and yeah I, I i do i do understand your point in that the 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 unique combination of like physical emotional and and heat stress usually that comes on race day is something which you only experience very few times a year and so that's where it's going to find you out if you're not prepared but but certainly like b races if that's what you want to call them in the build-up or or whatever they're they're definitely times where stressing your nutritional intake and perhaps even for example aiming for slightly higher intakes than you might think you need or will be able to take in your main race is a good idea because you only really find and know those limits by pushing them a little bit Mm. i think you make a good point there about considering not just the impact of nutrition during a training session but also um recovery from training sessions because we know that you know, and I've no, I've noticed this as certainly as I've got older that it's it's not hard sessions that need more recovery. 
it's longer sessions that need more recovery, you know. And so when folks are doing six-hour bike rides or two-hour runs, and, and goodness knows anybody training for an iron distance race wants to do a lot of those because they think that's the key session, um, they do they do have an impact uh, on on the sessions to come, and if you're not new, if you're not getting the right nutrition and hydration in, then um, it's going to affect more of those sessions in the week after. Um, yeah, and I do, I do think, I do think. Sorry, just to finish off, I do think a lot of people overlook that particular point as well of where sports nutrition has its place. It's not just about sort of fueling that session; it's fueling your recovery. Hundred percent. And and as another practical example of that, these days the longest session I would I would do typically is probably a ninety minute run. You know, on a Saturday morning, if I get the opportunity, um, I would I would always in the past have done that without any nutritional intake because I can get for a ninety minute run. You know, I feel I do probably feel a bit jaded towards the end, but that just is is part of the process, and I couldn't be bothered to carry a flask or a gel or whatever. These days, I'll have in a 90-minute run, I'll certainly have at least one, if not two gels. And if I can, if it's warm, I'll take a small flask of fluid with me. And the main reason for that is because when I when I sign off from that run and had a shower, I'm usually then into dad mode and I've got to go and take Bobby to football or Bethany's going to gymnastics or something like that. And I've I've got other stuff and I, I recover so much better if I just have a little bit of fuel and hydration in those sessions. And I'm sure that's probably a scenario a lot of people can relate to. You know, you, you're not a lot of good to your family or your work colleagues or whatever. If you've got a, if after your long bike ride on a, on a morning, you've got to lie on the sofa with your feet up because you're totally <laughs> trapped, you know, nutrition and hydration during a session is going to make you operate better the rest of the day. Yeah. I, I, t- I love that, that whole commentary there because that's uh, as coaches or as a coach, certainly that's one of the things that I always work on. It's not just about your training. You know, you've got 168 hours in a week. You're doing 10 hours of training for the other 158. You're somebody else. You're a father, you're a husband, you're a, you know, you're a boss, you're a friend. Um, think about how you, how all this is impacting that, the rest of that, um, that life. Uh, Emily, I'm, I'm going to come back to you now, if you don't mind. Um, we talked about uh, the fact that the the nutrition element of um, elite racing is fairly similar, de- regardless of the type of race, and that hydration changes depending on conditions and terrain. Um, do you notice any difference between male and female athletes in those same races? Yeah, so it's a good question. I'd say in terms of the hydration side of things, because it's so individual, it's less similar, as I said, with the kind of pros and age groupers. It's less if we split male and females, the trends wouldn't be obvious because it's so individual. And there's going to be some males and females at the top end taking on a litre per hour and there'll be some lower down. So the hydration is a lot more individual and less split. In terms of the the fueling and carbohydrates, I think lots of people would expect to see a real big difference in females probably taking less than males, but it's not really what we see, especially for full distance triathlons. It's pretty similar. I think in terms of the data on the bike, the males are taking on a little bit more in, in the overall on average, but on the run for that marathon run, it's actually pretty similar and males and females take on solid amounts probably getting up to 80 grams per hour and it's similar between males and females for middle distance there's a little bit of difference with males taking on slightly more but really not as much as you'd expect um and i say lots of people think that that females would take less but at this top level and these pro female athletes we have lots of lots of ambassadors they are taking on over 90 grams per hour it's not any less than the males really well, that's that's interesting because I would have just thought with body size and sort of um, muscle mass differences that 
like you say, that would have been my assumption that females would take on would would need and then take on less carbohydrates. Yeah, I think I think if you looked at the the two data sets, the the average carbohydrate intake for 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 ladies is ever so slightly lower than the average for men. But there's so much overlap in those two data sets that the the ladies that are taking on the highest amount are up there being relatively close to the guys that are taking the highest amount. On the on the flip side, down at the lower end, it's probably is ladies that we see taking the lowest amounts, but the guys that are taking the lowest amounts are not um, a lot more than them. So, yeah, the trend the trend is there that ladies take a little bit less than men, but it is a little bit less. It's really not dramatically so. Mm. Okay, um, so you've got all of these you've got all of this data, Emily, and you told me about the key lessons. Um, have you had any surprises when you've looked at this data? You know, has there been anything that's come out that you really didn't expect to see, or has or has there been something that you um, assumed before that has been totally blown apart now and is no longer valid? Yeah, I think there's been lots of surprises. Really, obviously, I've I've looked at each of these 200 case studies individually, and one of the main things to me was the variety in in the actual practical element of how people are hitting these numbers and it's not really one strategy fits all everyone's doing it a different way and some people are using some some crazy strategies but in terms of hmm. have learned from that is to just what Andy said earlier about making it as simple as as possible sticking to those three levers and and the numbers that people are aiming for one other side of things in terms of the actual stats I think that was a bit unexpected was caffeine um it's not so much one of those three levers that we talk about it's more of a little additional supplement but we're actually seeing loads of our athletes use it i think over 85 percent of all our triathlon case studies have used caffeine during the race um and quite a lot of quite like a high amount as well about i think an average of 400 milligrams of caffeine during a race and that is a as a high amount that could be four caffeine gels for example um i think that was one of the kind of statistical unexpected things that we saw it's just the amount that that people are using it and we as a company took that away and and then went into it we brought out the caffeine gel we've done a lot more research into caffeine because we've seen so many people kind of interested asking questions and using it on race day i wanted to ask you about that simon based on like the the, the history because when i remember you know 220 magazine triathlete magazine those kind of things that were the, the sole source of triathlon information mm. back in the 90s early 2000s when you know you and i were doing um long distance a bit more seriously and i never read about i don't or i don't recall reading about i didn't recall reading much about in-race nutrition but i certainly didn't hear about people using caffeine and things was it is it your perception that that's more of a newer trend or something uh, yes i think so i think i might have i think i might have seen seen stuff that said you, you know if you have caffeine if you have some coffee beforehand um that might help give you a boost and talking about if you are a regular coffee drinker if you stop drinking coffee for a week um which is easier said than done isn't it <laughs> um but if you stop drinking coffee for a week and then uh, have a cup just before your race you get a better hit but certainly the in-race caffeine and i'm going to come back to you emily in a second and ask you about whether you've noticed anything to do with the timings of that intake in-race caffeine is definitely a thing i, ca I can't rightly remember who was the first company to introduce caffeine in their gels um you know or or even when it happened but i, I wouldn't you know probably 
last eight or ten years, really, isn't it? It's, it's not before then. Yeah, it definitely feels like a more recent phenomenon for sure. And that's why I think we were a little bit surprised that, you know, 85 plus percent of, of triathletes appear to be using caffeine to to quite an aggressive extent, an average of 400 milligrams in a long distance race, which is that's the that's at least the equivalent of four very strong coffees. So when when would they typically be taking that, Emily? Because I know I've this is what I've heard people saying. Well, I'll take a I'll take a caffeine gel just before I get off the bike to give me a bit of a boost um, when I start the run, and I'll have one there as an emergency if I hit a low spot on the run. Yeah, but nothing more scientific than that. So it's different for full and middle distance. So for full distance, it's actually quite equal, that quantity on the bike and run. I think you're right in terms of the timings. It's often towards the end of the bike that people start having some. And it is one or two caffeine gels towards the end of the bike. Then they'll get on the run, have one or two caffeine gels on the run as well. Towards the start, it takes about 45 to 60 minutes for caffeine to actually spike in the bloodstream. So there's no one having it kind of, well, there's no point having it too late in the run. Um, but in terms of full distance, it's quite equal. It would be kind of 100 to 200 milligrams on both the bike and run. For middle distance, there's more of a drop off, obviously, because the run's much shorter and they're front loading and having more caffeine on the bike. So that two to three gels on the bike and they're not as much on the run unless they're having kind of a caffeinated energy drink, a bit on the go, Red Bull, Coke, anything like that. Um, going back to my previous comment about if you stop ingesting caffeine, in whatever form you take it for a, a few days before the event, do you get a better hit from the caffeine on race day then, or doesn't it really matter? There is there is some evidence that says if you completely go cold turkey and don't have any, and then introduce it, it would kind of, yeah, it would it would hit you and have more of an effect. But the kind of the downside of going without caffeine and without kind of your morning coffee for most people would affect them in a much greater way. So it's not really a recommendation that we advise because of that. I'm, no. glad to, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, our, our advice generally is is to potentially like taper the coffee down depending on how much you have. Like you certainly wouldn't increase the amount of caffeine you've taken in the last few days before race. Mm. But, but and we do, there are a couple of athletes we work with who are pretty keen on abstaining, aren't, aren't I think Fenella does. I was going to say, yeah. Fenella Langridge tends to, she enjoys coffee a lot, but will use it as part of her pre race preparation. And I, I certainly used to do it. And I remember it being part of the pre-race ritual in the sense that mm-hmm. you almost took some kind of weird enjoyment from the challenge of it because it felt like you were abstaining from something and, and giving yourself a better chance on the day. I think there's a big placebo effect with mm-hmm. doing that, and that cannot be underestimated. I think also there's a big placebo effect with a lot of athletes with taking caffeine or it's caffeine gel. There mm-hmm. is evidence of a physiological boost, but... Leon has said to us specifically that like in Nice, he was he was planning to take a caffeine gel at the start of the first big climb on the bike because he said, even though I know the caffeine takes 40 minutes to like really get going, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel like I'll be able to start the climb stronger when I do that. So yeah, I reckon and that and that is why, because Emily alluded to it, but we've definitely in the past seen a lot more athletes taking saving a caffeine gel for say mile 20 on the run really really deep because they know that's when they're going to be hurting and actually physiologically that caffeine isn't really going to be doing much until you get very very close to or even after mm-hmm. the finish mm-hmm. but people do it because of the psychological boost it's often they'll bring it they'll bring it forward in the race when they start to understand that actually maybe it's more beneficial to do so i'd be interested to uh, see your next study emily on how well those athletes sleep after the race yeah, yeah you'd be surprised at kind of the 
the high quantities that we see sometimes with with people like Leon, he dropped a bottle, and then you have to rely on on yeah. aid stations and, and people take on a, a lot of caffeine without realizing sometimes. Yeah. As a result of these case studies, have you uh, you talked about how you've gone back to some of the products and um, you know looked at that as a as a result of the research? Has has any of the messaging that you put out? Um, as a company, your marketing message has changed over the years um, as a result of what you're learning? Yeah, definitely. I think one that I just mentioned was the caffeine. We took that on board and, and put a lot more research in, into that. Another is is the carbohydrates, like I was saying, these really high carbohydrate intakes that we're seeing athletes hit on the bike and on the run and how they're doing it. So we learn a lot from these 200 different athletes learning how how they're hitting that, their bottle breakdown on on the bike, for example, um, Leon again, specifically as an example, we're seeing loads more of our case studies and we saw Leon, his technique of getting these high carb quantities on the bike was just to decant loads of gels into one bottle, mm-hmm. add some water, mix it up and make this really highly concentrated mix. So as a company, we took that away and and we thought there must be an easier way to do this. Um, and we produced the, the flow gel as a result of it because athletes are trying to hit these higher carbohydrate numbers. They're trying to do it by making a lot of effort for themselves in the morning of race day or or the day before mixing up these lots of gels and and a different amount of water each time just to make it much easier a flow gel that is exactly the same as in terms of ingredients as 10 pf30 gels um a little bit runnier or flowier as the name kind of demonstrates Um, so they can just shove that in one of the bottles um and go from there really it just makes it easier it's one of the the main takeaways in terms of the the practical side of what we've learned from the case studies yeah yeah i I, oh sorry simon can i can i also add i think the other thing where we've changed our messaging significantly is around we we used to be more we used to be more um assured about the fact that we preferred athletes to separate their fueling from their hydration in terms of electrolytes and fluids in bottles and and gels and, and other forms of calories a bit more solid separately i think and i i certainly for for cases where people are having problems with their nutrition i still fall back on that as being a sensible place to start because what that allows you to do is it allows you to independently manipulate how much carbohydrate how much fluid and how much electrolyte you're having and start to figure out the recipe that works for you i've definitely seen a lot of athletes who have had problems from putting their carbs their electrolytes and fluids all in one bottle and then trying to just continually make that work you know they it can often be too much for the gut to handle but in response to the sort of requests from athletes that we're working with we developed a carbohydrate and electrolyte drink and we also this year with lotto destiny the pro cycling team they wanted a pure carbohydrate drink and we've learned a lot working in the in the peloton with these cycling teams because they do rely very very heavily on lots and lots of carbohydrates in liquid form and and they they basically will have typically three bottles available to the riders they'll have bottles which have a carb electrolyte drink mix they'll have bottles which have a carb only drink mix and they'll have bottles which are just water and they'll have an individualized plan for the riders and then the riders then adjust it on the day based on how they're feeling for how much of their liquid intake should contain calories calories and electrolytes or just be be water and so we've we've taken this view that you know essentially we have our philosophy there if you like the core philosophy is know your numbers separate your fueling and hydration and try to manipulate those numbers um, as independently as you can for the safest outcome 
but at the same time there is a, there is a there are exceptions to the rule significant exceptions to the rule where liquid calories are a good thing and so we've we've kind of learned lent into that and tried to work with athletes understand what they want and develop products that that they that fit that that fit that bill and, and meet that need i'm i'm glad you mate brought that point up about the uh, pro cycling teams because one of my questions was um whether the type of event you know i know we've talked about the different types of events but we've mostly been concerned about triathlon if you were doing an all-day cycling event like a long sportive versus um an all-day running event like an ultra is there a difference to nutrition or nutrition intakes that you've noticed there? Yeah, we haven't looked at that. We haven't split those out too specifically, have we? But no, in terms of the stats and the quantities, I think they would be pretty similar. The main difference that we have seen is then how how they're actually hitting those numbers. So like Andy said, with using more drink mix and these strong carb mixes compared to kind of an ultra athlete who will be using more real foods and solids to get those high carb intakes. Yeah, I think they, the the general trend is that cyclists seem to either prefer or because it's practically easier to get refills and, and new bottles, they tend to go for a higher amount of, of bottled li- uh, liquid calories. Whereas ultra runners, they'll carry a lot more concentrated gels, chews, bars, and then get fluids and electrolytes at aid stations. The uh, I'm glad you brought up that idea about the flow gel because you kindly sent me a a, a big box of samples to use. Um, and I'm I'm going on uh, a five-day cycling trip in Romania on Sunday, so I'm going to take some of that with me and see how it works. But I can remember back to some of my uh, iron distance events maybe 10 or 12 years ago where I did exactly what you just mentioned, Emily. I got a whole load of gels and I just decanted them into a bottle and thought, right, what I'm going to do is, and it wasn't very scientific, I'm going to take a sip of this and squirt it into my mouth. And then I'm going to take two sips of water from the water bottle and let it all mix up in my stomach. Um, and of course, these days, now that, you know, they've always been hard on people on littering, but more so now. And it's more, perhaps more, um, they're more vocal about it, I would say, the race directors, that um, if you can decant all of those gels prior to setting off, then you're not going to be worried about things dropping out of your pocket, are you? And of course, it's a lot easier to keep hold of a bottle most of the time than it is some gels that are, that are in your pocket. Um, oh, yeah. And I think so things like, you know, gravel riding is emerging as a really popular sport now and, and taking your hands off the bars to try and open a, a gel when you're riding on the gravel compared with grabbing a, a, a water bottle that is full of gel effectively mm. and getting a mouthful of that is it's a far easier experience, you know, to to do it in the bottle way rather than it is taking because these gravel races some of them are 200 miles long you know they they go on for well in excess of 10 hours you need a lot of calories and that's a very efficient effective way to mm. to to get them in and the book the flow bottle that we've designed to go with it it's a simple concept but it's i don't know why i didn't no one's done it before it's a completely clear bottle with markings on the side that if you use our flow gel in there we've we've measured it so that the the approximate amount of carbohydrate you've gone through between two of the markings is on the side so you can just periodically hold up the bottle and see yeah okay well in the last hour i've been through another 60 grams or whatever and Uh just gives you that that ability to stay on top of hitting your numbers sticking within your plan um just going away from some of the stats but onto some of the blog posts that um that, that folks can read on on your site and I'll, I will put a link to these specific ones. Um, I saw one that you'd written about um, athletes being hydrated before events 
So not just thinking about what happens once the gun goes off, but actually pre-hydrating. And that your blog post seems to be indicating that most of the people who are doing that successfully were using your pH 1500, which is super strength uh, electrolyte tablets. Um, can you talk a little bit, bit more about that, please, Emily? Because I don't think prehydration is something that a lot of people really consider. Yeah, it's in our messaging quite a lot and, and something we've looked into a lot. And we found that lots of athletes really don't start races hydrated. Lots of people think they need to drink lots of water ahead of races to make sure they are st- starting hydrated, but they're actually starting dehydrated because of that. So what we recommend is having a strong relative sodium concentration drink in the morning of a race. Um, the pH 1500 specifically in 500 ml about two hours before you head out. So having that sodium in there just helps you retain the fluid a lot better. means you're starting well hydrated compared to if you didn't have that. So um, sorry to interrupt there, but I, I always understood that it takes it takes more than just a couple of hours to sort of hydrate cells effectively. You need, you need to be doing it over a couple of days. Um, so do people need to be considering this on the, the, the week of the race or, or middle of the week of the race rather than just race morning? Yeah, it's a good question when we get asked quite a lot. Our body keeps a really tight restraint on the amount of sodium in the system. So there's no point really doing it a week out like you can where you do the days before with the carb loading side of things. Um, with sodium, not so much. The one thing you can do is is the night before as well, just to help you top up that blood sodium and fluid and then the morning up. But really, yeah, you go. No, carry on, carry on. In your diet, you're getting a good amount of, of sodium as well, and you'll be drinking a solid amount that in the week leading up to you should be fine. Just having some, obviously, if you're if you're training, and then the night before, morning of, for kind of a, a strategy to stick to. Okay, so my, other ex- my own experience is if I drink water, pure water, I find that I'm going to the loo more often, okay, and it's coming out. If I have that same water with one of your – pH 500 tabs dissolved into it and I drink it in the same sort of uh, rhythm throughout the day I'm going to the toilet less and so I'm, I'm my assumption is therefore that that fluid is staying in my body and I'm better hydrated am I is, is that correct yeah that's spot on the the sodium instead of having just plain water just as I said helps you retain that fluid instead of just drinking plain water where you're right you just get out and kind of flush your system a bit okay so Nice sum up of that one. The the other blog post I looked at was about um, consumption of a PF30 gel um, leading up to the event, so in the morning. So is that something that folks are doing on top of their sort of perhaps their pre-race breakfast or is that instead of? Yeah, on top of really, and it's something that we've learned a lot from the case studies, actually, that loads and loads more athletes are doing this final carb dose. So within the last 30 minutes, often in the last kind of 15, 20 minutes, and often in the form of a gel, uh, sometimes choose, it's down to preference, really, but athletes will take that final carb dose 15 minutes to go just to spike their blood glucose. And what that does is it, it saves some glycogen the stored glycogen for later on in the race you use that that blood glucose goes straight to your working muscles and you use that straight away instead so we're seeing loads more athletes do that before the swim start literally just as just as the last 10 minutes is is happening and oftentimes that'll be a caffeine gel as well so something Mm -hmm. with the caffeine timings that i didn't discuss is is the pre-race caffeine and a lot of the time that's another way to get that final caffeine dose in before the race as well okay Good, good to know. And I guess that's because in a triathlon, in particular the long ones, you, you're not, you know, the elite athletes aren't going to be taking in any calories for 45, 50 minutes. And for, for, for some other people, that might be 90 minutes. So, um, like I say, better to use what's in your bloodstream um, than what's stored in your 
muscles. Yeah, definitely. And that's something worth worth testing out in training and worth trialing and, and seeing how you go. When we were talking earlier about gut training as well, doing the kind of morning routine and having a, a high carbohydrate breakfast and then having that final gel as well in training to go in well fueled as well. Okay. I know uh, we're wrapping up now. I just have one more question. We, you know, as we recording this podcast, it's towards the end of September. Um, so most people are winding down with their races now for 2023. And I guess that their thoughts about um, sports specific nutrition while they're training is probably going out the window and they just go, right, well, on my long ride on a Sunday, I'm going to go to the coffee shop, have, have, a, have a large mug of caffeine and a baked sandwich, and that'll be fine. And then I'm going to do what Andy used to do on his long runs and just go out and uh, survive on what's in my system and then get back and have Sunday lunch. Um, just briefly, what what are the key things that folks should be thinking about with respect to session nutrition um, during the winter, some some maybe some key principles that they can uh, be reminded of. I think the main ones there are to that as you're taking your foot off the gas with the overall intensity and specificity of your training, it's also it is okay to sort of relax with the nutritional side of things to an extent. You know, we don't need to be like smashing gels and loads of drink mix and and pretending that we're still in in a key phase of preparation leading up to a big race um what you don't want to do though is go too far the other way and start under fueling under hydrating and neglecting that side of things on these long winter base rides long runs those kind of things it's about about finding the balance between fueling and, and hydrating those adequately so that you can still maintain performance and recover well but not not pretending that you need to you know keep smashing away and, and treating them like the last few brick sessions before a big Ironman or something like that. I think it's good for us all to just you know chill out and do exactly what you said. Go on a cafe ride. When I go out riding my gravel bike with the guys on a weekend, if we if we don't stop for a coffee, I will have probably raided the cupboard, and I'm just as likely to take some of the sort of snack bars that we have in the house that usually go in the kids' lunch boxes as I am to take a gel or something like that because mm-hmm. I, being, being overly um, anal about that sort of stuff all year round is just, A, it's expensive, you know, at the end of the day, sports nutrition, decent sports nutrition isn't cheap. And also it's just a little bit overkill and it's good to it's good to relax off. But yeah, it's, it's just about like not going too far the other way and starting to train under-fueled and under-hydrated because that's just going to compromise your performance. Brilliant. Emily, Andy, thank you so much. Um, we've covered everything I wanted to, I think. It got a nice little plug-in for the new Flow Gels. We're going to put... Um, uh, a link to that specifically in the show notes, along with all of the things that that um, we've chatted about today. Um, I've learned a lot, as I always do, chatting with you folks. Emily, thank you uh, for being here. I can see why Andy's so keen to keep you in the Precision Fuel and Hydration team. Um, it's been really, really great to have you um, assisting him and adding your sort of research um, findings there. So thank you both. And I'll, I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Simon. And enjoy your few days away cycling. We'll be good to hear how you get on with the flow gel when you've when you've had a go with that out there. Yeah, and likewise, enjoy your time in Kona. I'll I'll be interested to hear how you get on with your caffeine intake. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thank you again to Emily and Andy for being my guests on this week's show. I just love the effort that they've put into creating those case studies and 
you can find links to them in their show notes and I hope that when you read them you're able to find something in there as well as the blog post that will help you to get on top of your nutrition and hydration for next season's racing to make sure you don't miss any future episodes please go to itunes search for high performance human triathlon podcast and click the subscribe button and while you're there and if you've got a little bit of time i'd love it if you can write us a review on apple podcasts that really makes a difference to our rankings and it makes a difference to me personally because it means that at least we have a few listeners and talking to listening is that something you like to do with books or perhaps you like reading if you do then i have something you might be interested in if you ever read the show notes you might have seen that we ask our guests to recommend their favorite book something that's inspired or captivated them and they've been doing this over the last few years so we've been able to compile a list of all of these titles which is now way over 200 and if you'd like the full pdf list please click on the link in the show notes and you can download that while you're there make sure you check out all those other show notes so that you can see the links to things that we've talked about in this week's episode okay so that's all for today next week i'll have another great guest and i hope you will be able to join me bye for now